Turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 28. John 4, verse 28. I can remember, even though my wife and I have been married over 25 years now, um, and yeah, we were married when we were five, just so you know. Um, but I, I can remember very, very well the first time I ever brought her home to see my parents, to meet my family. We'd been dating a couple of months. We were both students at U of H, and, and uh, I was really nervous about it because I had never brought a girl home to meet mom and dad before. I didn't date a lot in high school. It was totally by choice because I had really high standards, all right? I don't know what's funny about that. But, um, but I meet this beautiful young woman uh, who's from a very different world from me. You know, I grew up in, a, in, in the country. I grew up around cattle and pickup trucks and cow manure. And my wife grows up, Carrie grows up around big houses and Mercedes Benzes. My church that I grew up in, where my grandfather was the chairman of the deacons and my mom was the president of the WMU, and uh, it, was, it was so small, if we had 40 people on a Sunday morning, it was probably high attendance day. And that's no, that's no exaggeration. Her church, again, no exaggeration, was so large, her youth ministry alone was bigger than my whole high school. And so we were from very different worlds. And so I was very nervous about bringing her home. What's she going to think about this place I grew up in? What's she going to think about where I'm from and, and, and my family? And how are they going to respond to her? I found out much, much later because she played it really cool the day of. But I found out months later, maybe even years later, she was extremely worried about that trip. She was petrified. And the reason why was because her parents, and, and this is not me disparaging my in-laws. I've got the greatest in-laws on earth. My father-in-law is in heaven now, but great father-in-law. My mother-in-law is a wonderful woman, but they were city people. And, and, and they didn't know about much about living in the country. They had seen the movie Deliverance, okay? Um, and that, that pretty much informed what they thought of rural people. And so Carrie's mom actually sat her down. You know, here's her you know, 19-year-old daughter, and she's sitting there, and she's saying, now, honey, just don't respond. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked at whatever you see. These people are probably going to be very different than us. And she tried to walk her through the different scenarios of what she might see. So I didn't realize this, but as we're driving down the little gravel road to my house, my wife is imagining there's probably going to be an outhouse in the front yard, you know, and live chickens wandering through the house, and my little inbred brothers and sisters all scrambling around. Um, and, and I find this out later, how scared she was. And I tell you that story because as church people, if you grew up in a church, especially if you're my age or older, but even if you're younger, if you, if you grew up around all this, this is familiar to you. This is home to you. And so you come to church and you're like, yeah, yeah, this is no big deal. In fact, if you move to another town, it's probably not going to be a big deal to you to join another church. I hope you do. But to a person who didn't grow up in church, for people who aren't quote unquote churched, this is alien territory. As scared as my future wife was to go into my home back in rural Lavaca County, your average non-Christian person is that much more intimidated to walk into this place. And we have this obsolete mindset that dates back to the 50s or so that says, all we need to do to spread the gospel is build a nice building. We got that, check. We just need to get the right pastor. Jury's still out on that one. We need to get the right kind of music and, and the right kind of programs, good student ministry, good children's ministry. Maybe throw a couple of big events once in a while. They'll come pouring in. They'll hear the gospel. They'll meet Christ. Salvation, boom. We got, we've done our job. That's what church experts call attractional 
ministry. And that's the way most churches have done things for generations. And maybe there was a time when that's the way it really worked. But I'm here to tell you that day is gone. Most non-Christian people, most irreligious folks, in fact, a lot of people who grew up in church but have gotten out of the habit, this is the last thing they're thinking of on Sunday morning is, well, I need a good church where I can hear a good sermon and hear good music and put my kids in a good children's ministry. That's not what they're thinking. In fact, for a lot of them, they don't know what we do in here. They don't want to know. They, they figure it's probably not good. We're handling snakes. We're, we're, you know, if they showed up here, we'd, we'd call them demon-possessed and, and rail against all of their lifestyle choices. They don't want to come here. They're not going to come here. And that's why attractional ministry is not what is needed. We need to be missional, not attractional. That doesn't mean we don't do a good job of what we do here. That doesn't mean we don't take care of the facilities God's blessed us with. It does mean if people are going to be reached in Conroe, Texas, and Montgomery County, it's going to be because you and me, not just the ordained clergy, but all of us, live like missionaries. Live like, like Russ and Sherry Fleetwood would and just go to the people. Learn how they think. Learn what's important to them. Meet them at their level and love them as they are and love them to Christ. That is how people's lives will be changed. That's how our community will be transformed. So we're in this series. We're closing it out today, in fact, uh, about living a contagious life. In our life groups, we've been studying a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And hopefully you've been challenged and encouraged and inspired by that. In this sermon series, we've been talking about how there are so many different ways God makes us missionaries. And some of us are just naturally engaging and confrontational. And for some of us, being like Peter on the day of Pentecost and saying, here's the gospel now. What do you think about it? That's just natural for us. And for those of us that it's not natural, we need to be that way sometimes. For others of us, the, the approach Paul used in Athens when he was very intellectual in his approach, and he, he met people who had deep Deep-seated doubts about the truth of the gospel. He met those doubts and, and answered those questions and gave them a compelling presentation. Some of us, that approach comes naturally. All of us need that sometimes. Sometimes we need to be like the, the blind man in, in John chapter 9 who all he did was just tell his story and his story was so compelling. Some of you have incredible stories that you, should, you can and should tell to your unsaved friends. Sometimes we need to be like Matthew, who just maintains those relationships with unbelievers that he had before he came to Christ and just uses those friendships as an opportunity to take the love of Christ to people who desperately need it, who wouldn't receive it from anybody else. Last week, Alan did a fantastic job talking about how a, a great way to share the love of Christ with people is just through meeting their physical needs, whether that's food, whether that's clothing, education, encouragement. And he talked about all the many opportunities we have at First Baptist Church, the many ministries the different members of this church lead to meet the needs of this community. He didn't even have time to cover all of them. So I guarantee you, if you're not involved in a ministry of outreach in this, in, through our church, there's an opportunity for you, something that meets your passions and your calling. Today I want to talk about a final way that God uses us to reach people, and that is through invitation. That is through simply saying, come to church with me. Come to church and come and see what I've found. Now, we're, we're looking at the story of the woman at the well. I say those words. And if you grew up in church, you have a background in the Bible, those are familiar words. You know the story well, but some of you haven't. So let me just kind of give you the rundown. Jesus and his disciples most spent most of their time in Israel, but it, at some points they veered into Gentile territory. And this time they headed through a territory that was part of the Samaritan region. Samaritans 
were people who had Jewish ancestry, but also it was mixed with ancestry from peoples from the north, the, the Assyrians and others. And so the Jews looked at them with a very condemning tone, like, you people are half-breeds, you're not true Jews. And Samaritans didn't like the Jews. They had religious conflicts. The Jews thought the temple of God was supposed to be in Jerusalem, where David planted it, and the people of Samaria thought, no, 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 our father Jacob said it was to be here in Samaria. So there was all kinds of conflict between the two groups. Most Jewish men wouldn't go into Samaria. Jesus did. He walks into this village called Sychar, and he walks up to the, to the well in the middle of town, and he sits down for a moment. His, his disciples are, are kind of weirded out being there. They don't like being in that territory. They said, we're going to go find some food so we can eat and get out of here. While they're away getting their food, a woman comes in the middle of the day, the middle of the afternoon, carrying her water jug. It was part of woman's work was to draw the water for the home. Remember, there was no running water in, in your house. So all your day's water came from that trip by mom to the town well. And, and Bible scholars, most of them will say the fact that this woman was coming alone in the heat of the day meant that she was an outcast because drawing water was a social activity for women in the ancient world. Think of it. They were busy from, from dawn to dusk. There was one time a day when they could interact with other women and kind of share, here's what's going on in my life. How are things with you? And that was when it, when, when it came time to draw water, which was usually early. This woman came in the afternoon, which meant she was avoiding the other women and they were, they were avoiding her. And we find out why. As Jesus begins to talk to her and says, hey, listen, I've got water for you that's, that you can't draw from a well. It's living water that'll change your life, that'll set you free, that'll fill you with joy, and it'll never run out. And she's like, hey, first of all, why are you talking to me? Because I know you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and you're a man and I'm a woman. We're not supposed to even be interacting here. Jesus says, Get beyond all those cultural taboos because I've got something for you no one else can give you. And the woman's kind of standoffish at first, and, and Jesus gets right to the root of things by saying, why don't you go get your husband so I can talk to him too? And she says, well, the truth is I don't have a husband. And he says, I know, because you've been married five times, and the guy you're living with now is not even your husband. And she says, well, um, I think you must be a prophet. And he says, well, duh. Actually, he doesn't say that, but he says, yes, I am. And she says, since you're a prophet, why don't you tell me when's the Messiah going to show up? I mean, we Samaritans, just like you Jews, are waiting for God to send our great deliverer who will set our people free. Jesus says, you're looking at him. I am he. And this totally blows her mind. And she runs back into her village and will pick up the story right there with verse 28 of John chapter 4. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So here's this woman, first of all, a woman in that culture in the ancient world, sad to say ladies, but most men would not have listened to the testimony of a woman if she would have said, I just saw a three-headed camel. They would have said, whatever. But two things are in her favor. First of all, this was a time of incredibly intense messianic anticipation. In other words, people were expectant that God would send the Messiah any day now. So anytime there was anyone charismatic, it was like, hey, is this guy the one? They were interested in this. Secondly, this woman, even though she was an outcast, even though she was not respected by her people, she was showing such evident signs of change in her life, such a different countenance. They wanted to see what was going on. What has happened to her? And so they go. And we'll pick up the, the verse, we'll pick up the story in verse 39. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So this is a revolutionary thing that has just happened. First of all, that these people who naturally hate Jews have invited a Jewish man to come and stay and teach them about God for two days. And then afterwards they say, we believe he's the Savior of the world. He's not even Samaritan. We trust in him. He's now our Savior. This woman who starts off the story as the town tramp ends the story as the transformer of her entire town. Why? Because all she did was say, come and see. Come with me. I've got someone I want you to meet. And I'm here to tell you today, all these methods of evangelism we've talked about and ways God uses us to draw people to Christ, of all of those, I think the easiest is to simply say to someone, hey, why don't you go to, me, go to church with me today? Hey, tomorrow morning we're, having, we're in the middle of a series about such and such. And, and I know that may not sound interesting to you, but I think it's going to be good. Why don't you come with me? I'll, I'll pick you up at, at 1030 and, and we'll stop and get breakfast on the way or maybe we can have lunch afterwards. I'm buying. This is a low risk, high yield way to get people started on the path to salvation. In fact, Lifeway Research did, some, did a study a few years ago. They just wanted to know, does it still work to invite people to church? We're living in such a non-religious age. And they were surprised. They asked uh, over a thousand unchurched people, would you go to a Christian church if you had a friend who went with you? 82% said yes. 82%. That if they had a friend, someone they trusted, who said, hey, come with me, they'd go. The bad news of that same survey is they asked Christians, how many of you have invited a non-Christian to church with you in the past 12 months? 21%. 21% said yes. So the easiest and one of the most effective ways of drawing people to Christ is right there for the asking. And yet only one out of five of us in the past 12 months said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I wonder what the number would be in this room. I wonder what the number would be if I asked each of you. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that, but I wonder. So I'm just challenging you today to think. Think of the people on these cards that we've, we've committed to invest in over the past few weeks. Over 170, maybe 200 cards, people who've said, I'm going to invest in this person. I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to look for an opportunity to show them the difference in my life because of Christ and, and to be used by God to draw them to His love. Think about those people. What would happen if every one of us would take one of those cards and say, hey, would you come with me to church this week? The person who's mentioned on that card, if we just invited them to come with us. Now, I know there's some objections that immediately pop into your head, so I want to cover those and then we're done. Number one, you might say, hey, you've got a false equivalence there, Jeff. Inviting somebody to church isn't the same as what this woman did in John 4. Inviting someone to church is not the same thing as inviting them to hear Jesus. And I would agree with you. Let me just say, I'm not Jesus. I'm not as good a speaker as him. I've never raised the dead. I've never stilled a storm. I've never, I've never turned loaves and fishes into a meal for 5,000. I've never worked a miracle. 
I can barely work a, an electric drill. I can't, I can't do anything. I don't have powers like that. I get it. And yet, please understand something. I, I hope you do. When you invite someone to visit First Baptist Church, you're not inviting them to hear me preach. I hope you know that. You're not inviting them to hear the music. You're inviting them to meet the family of God. Please understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this is the only place where there's the family of God. Every local congregation that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ is the family of God. You know that, right? But if you invite them to this church, they're going to meet your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think back to my story at the beginning. When I invited my future wife home to meet my parents and my younger brother, why did I do that? I did that because I thought to myself, this is someone special. I want her to know people who are special to me. I want to bring her into this segment of my life because I think that's important. And I'm glad I did. True story. After that, whenever I'd come home from college, if I didn't have Carrie with me, my dad would say, what do you mean coming home alone? What's the matter with you? So it worked, right? I brought those two together. You bring somebody into this body of Christ you're introducing them to your brothers and sisters. You're taking a step in your friendship that says, you mean something to me, and so I want you to meet somebody else who means something to me. And not only that, it's even bigger than that. See, the New Testament tells us that when Jesus was here, for those 33 or so years, He was God in human flesh. God walked this earth. He'd never done that before, but He walked this earth in human flesh. And then he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And from that day forward, New Testament says that every local congregation that calls itself by the name of Jesus and preaches his gospel is the body of Christ on earth. So get what that means. That means you and I, when we invite someone into this building on a Sunday morning, we invite them to, to meet with the family of God. We're literally inviting them to meet Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's powerful. And I'll tell you something else, and then I'll move to the next point. I can't promise you that if you bring your friend here on a Sunday morning, they're going to hear the best sermon they've ever heard in their life. I can't promise you that. They're going to get the best I got, but that's all. But I can promise you this. They're going to hear the gospel. They're not going to hear five tips on how to get rich. They're not going to hear ten ways to make your marriage happy. They're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what I'm preaching on, this is a covenant I've made. This is a, this is a choice I've made, a, a, what I believe the Lord has called me to do. That every Sunday, people need to hear that God loves you so much that even though you and I are sinners and there's no way we can possibly connect with God on our own, no way we can make our lives right with Him, no way we can experience eternal life. In spite of all of that, Jesus came specifically for the purpose of giving His life for us. God in the flesh dying on a cross for our sins to pay the penalty for the wrong that we've done. And then three days later, He rose. And therefore, and therefore, the whole key to life is not obey the Ten Commandments and do your best and hope for something good to happen. The key to life is trusting in that sacrifice that gracious love of God and saying, I will accept the gift you've given me. The door you've opened, Lord, I'm going to walk through it and experience brand new life with you and a life with purpose that you made me for from the very beginning. And I'm going to have an assurance that at the end of this life, I have eternity with you. They're going to hear that every week, I promise, in one form or another. And that's worth it. 
Invite your friends to church. And they'll hear God's Word. They'll meet Jesus in the, present, in, in the flesh. They'll meet the family of God. Second objection some people might have. Yeah, that sounds great, but you don't understand. I've got friends that wouldn't have anything to do with church. They, they would, I've invited, they, they won't even think of it. If that's the case for you, I want to say congratulations because too many of us as Christians don't even have friends like that, and we should. It's our job to be salt and light among people who feel exactly that way. If you've got friends who are that way, keep up those relationships. And understand that if your friends feel that way about church, they probably have a good reason. Maybe they grew up in church themselves and experienced awful things. I mean, sad to say, it's true. I mean, each local church is the body of Christ on earth, but they're all, each local church is full of sinful people. And sometimes the most sinful people in a particular church are the people in charge. And if you grew up in one of those churches and you got burned, you got abused, I don't blame you for feeling that way. I don't blame you for saying, I'll never set foot in another church. There may be people who, maybe your friends didn't grow up in church, but they've heard things or they've experienced things. Maybe they had a boss who was a Christian who, who acted like a hypocrite. Maybe they dated someone who was a Christian who treated them badly. Maybe they've just seen too many blowhard preachers on TV and they've said, that's what Christianity is all about. I don't want any of it. But for whatever reason, they feel that way. And, and the next part is totally my opinion, but I think I'm right about this. If you brought them here, I can't speak for every other church, but if you brought them here, I believe they would be pleasantly surprised at what they'd experience. Because this is a group of people that is not perfect by any means. And here's what's more important, doesn't claim to be. This is a group of people that if they came here, they would see, we don't judge them. Doesn't matter how they look. Doesn't matter what they've done. We don't judge them. We're glad they're here. This is a group of people that, that would just say, hey, I struggle just like you do. I'm just here because there's a God who loves me enough that He forgave my sins, and I just want to know what He wants me to do next. See, the thing is, if you have a friend who you think is resistant and would resent being invited to church, two things. Number one, first of all, at least give them a chance to say no. Secondly, if you've asked and they've said no, don't give up. And that doesn't mean be nagging and persistent. That means love them. Keep on loving them. Let them know, hey, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be your friend even if you don't come to church with me. Show them the difference in your life that Jesus Christ makes. And wait for an opportune time because the time will come. If you're faithful, the time will come when they're going to be more open than they are right now. And maybe it's going to be because of something that happens in their life when they're like, man, I, I don't know what I need, but I need something. And maybe you have it. Or maybe it's going to be because something happens in this church that you know they might be open to coming now. And by the way, this next six weeks or so is going to be a great opportune time for you to invite people to this church. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. A week from today, the, the music that our choir and orchestra has been working on for months, literally months, Christmas music is going to be presented here. Uh, you can invite your friends... 8.30 and 11 o'clock, the service is going to be almost entirely music. They don't even have to listen to a sermon next week. I'm going to get up and share a gospel presentation, but nobody hates Christmas, right? Nobody hates Christmas music. Even the toughest guy out there, he may not admit it, but he likes Christmas music. That's why 99.1 is the highest rated radio station for the next six weeks in Houston. You can invite them to that. The next Wednesday, Wednesday, December 6th, 
We'll have music out on the parking lot, Christmas music and, and rides and games and, and food. Invite your friends, invite their kids. The next week, I'm starting a series, a Christmas series about the, the wise men that came from afar. Everybody's heard that story, but we're going to talk about who were these guys? Where did they come from? What was it they saw in the sky? How did that draw them to a little village called Bethlehem in a manger, in a stable? How did that happen? Why is it important? And then Christmas Eve, you know, here's the thing about Christmas. Even people who are just hard-bitten, non-religious people oftentimes feel in their heart of hearts, it would be fun to go to church on Christmas Eve and, and just see what that's all about. That just feels like the right thing to do. Invite your friends. We're having three services this year because Christmas Eve is on Sunday. And right after that is New Year's. New Year's is a time of renewal. People are turning over a new leaf. Give it a shot. They might be open to seeing what God has for them. By the way, in 2018, the whole year I'm preaching on how to equip yourself, how to be equipped for the purpose God created you for in this world. And maybe your friend is saying, I don't have all, everything figured out. I sure would like to know why I'm here. And that's what I'll be talking about all year long. So invite your friends. Even if they're resistant now, opportune times are coming. Give it a shot. Third objection. And here we're getting real nice and honest. You might say, you know, Jeff, the truth is I find church boring. I, I just, I'm just bored. I'm, I'm here most Sundays and I'm just fighting to stay awake. And it's not because I'm tired. It's just because I'm, I'm bored. How can I invite friends to something that I can barely fight through myself? And if that's the way you feel, I hope most of you don't, but if that's the way you feel, I've got to tell you, that's on me. Because here's what I believe. The God of the Bible, and I know if you've ever read Leviticus, you might miss this, but the God of the Bible is the most interesting being in the universe. He is the one who created everything we consider fun, everything we consider interesting, everything we consider exciting. He's the source of all of that, laughter and joy and good food and, and pleasure. He created everything that is good. And so I believe that it is a sin to preach a boring sermon. And some of you are like, well, brother, you better repent. Well, if that's true, then I better repent. But let me ask you a question. What are you doing about it? Because you bear some responsibility too. You're not an audience. You realize that, right? I'm not up here for your entertainment. I hope you know. You're not an audience. You're participants with me in an important event, which is the glorifying of God together as one voice. The family of God saying to God how good you are. Are you ready for that every Sunday? Or do you just show up and expect something to happen? Do you get your heart ready Saturday night before you go to bed? Do you say, hey, God, I've got an appointment with you tomorrow. Please get me ready. Get my heart right so when I wake up in the morning, I'm patient with my wife and my kids. I don't get off to the wrong foot. Help me to get there on time. Help me to be ready for what you have to say to me. When you walk into this room, do you actually pray a prayer and say, Lord, help me to actually mean it when I sing these songs and not just mumble through them? When it comes time for the message, do you say, hey, Lord, bless Jeff as he preaches. Get the word out through him. And Lord, whatever you have to say to me, give me ears to hear it. Because here's the thing. You're going to be here, right? And God's got something to say to you. Don't take a chance of missing that. My challenge for you is every Sunday, say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be someone different when I walk out of this room than I was when I got here. 
And maybe that means I'm going to be more joyful. Maybe it means I'm going to be a little more burdened because you've given me a challenge. But one way or another, I want to be different. Because here's the thing, the woman at the well, she didn't win her whole village to Christ because she was influential. She won people to Christ because they looked at her and said, something happened to this woman. It says before they even met Jesus, some of them were already convinced. And the rest of them at least came to hear him based on her testimony. Why? Because they'd seen the change in her already. And I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen in groups of friends. I've seen it happen in youth ministries. I've seen it happen in schools. I've seen it happen in churches where one person, and not necessarily the most influential person, not necessarily the alpha dog of that organization, but just one person, one ordinary person gets on fire for Christ. And I'm not talking about in a pretentious, showy way. I just mean there's suddenly a joy about them and a purpose, and they're sincere in their worship and, they, and their prayer, and, and, and in everything they do, they've got a, they've got a plan. One person gets on fire and everybody's like, wait a second, I need some of that. And soon, a whole group of people is transformed. And that can happen here. In fact, I got a story for you and then I'm done. Dr. Al Faisal was one of my professors at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, and he told a story once about a pastor's conference he went to years ago. Back during the Cold War, um, they had a pastor's conference, and, and they had this, this pastor from someplace in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain, and he was pastoring a church that, you know, in a country where Christianity was officially outlawed, where there was all kinds of government pressure and repression and in spite of all of that, in spite of all those disadvantages, in spite of the fact that he had this tiny building and no staff and no money, his church was just bringing people to Christ left and right, blowing the doors open. It was, it was the kind of thing where every Sunday the members of the church would come to church and say, okay, I'm giving up my seat today because here's a brother who's never been here before and I want him to have a place to sit. And they would actually leave the windows open and the doors open, even though in that part of the world it was cold most of the year, because so many people who would come, they couldn't fit in the building, and they'd stand around outside and listen to the music and listen to the preaching and just praise God together. And so he gave a testimony. He talked about the great things God was doing. Everybody was inspired. And afterwards, they took him and they said, brother, we want you to meet somebody. And they took him to this very stately gray-haired gentleman, and they said, brother, this is Dr. W.A. Criswell. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, the biggest church in the world, which at the time it was. They said, Dr. Criswell pastors a church that has 20,000 members. And this Eastern European man said, my goodness, how big is your building that you would fit that many people? And Criswell just sort of chuckled. And he said, well, you know, most of them rarely come to church. I mean, we only need room for a couple of thousand. And at this, Dr. Faisal said the, the man's eyes began to well up with tears. I mean, real tears. And he reached out and he grabbed Criswell, who's of course this this well-respected pastor, he grabs him and he wraps him in this big bear hug and he says, oh brother, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. And he said, the look on Criswell's face was just astonishing. It was priceless because here's this guy that everybody aspired to be. And for the first time in his life, somebody pitied him for his position. Now why? I mean, most young preacher boys would have looked at W.A. Criswell and said, well, that's exactly, he's got everything I want. He's got a big church. Everybody knows his name. He's got plenty of money. He's got a big salary. He can do anything he wants to do ministry-wise. But to this Eastern European pastor, he said, yeah, but I've got a church where people are so hungry for Jesus that we can't fit them all in the building. I've got a church that's so, where the people are so passionate about the gospel 
And everybody has to give up their seats every Sunday just to fit all the people who come in and want to hear the gospel for the first time. And wouldn't you love to see that happen in Conroe, Texas? Wouldn't you, see that, wouldn't you love to see that happen at First Baptist Church and at other churches around our city and across our county? Wouldn't you love it if every Sunday you came here and you got here and there was somebody sitting in your seat and you're like, oh, hallelujah, somebody else is here. You would say that, right? Well, that's our vision. Our vision as a, as a church body is that God's going to do a renovating work on the hearts of us and make us people who are passionate about making disciples of Jesus Christ. Not because we want to be First Baptist Dallas back in the 60s. Not because I want to be somebody famous. In fact, I hope I'm not. But because there are so many people in our community who need to know that God loves them. And they're not going to know it because we preach sermons and we sing music and we have a nice building, but they're going to know it because someone goes to them and says, hey, come and see what I found. And I hope you're one of those people. Think about how that would be if our community was transformed, just like the village of Sychar was transformed because one person got excited, excited enough to say, you've got to see this. You've got to come with me.